This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the ninth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus and the disciples went on and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Christ. Please be seated. Grace, peace, and joy to each of you, this day through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. What a delightful thing to be with you. I'm grateful for the invitation from Pastor Beth to provide a respite during her vacation and to be here with you this Sunday and also um, at the end of this relationship series Um, Relationships are important to all of us and as exemplified by the text for today. I have known Pastor Jim almost since the first day I was here in Columbus 10 years ago. And he has been a good colleague and a good challenger to me in my own faith formation. And also a wonderful support colleague, too. And I've known Pastor Beth since her time in the seminary and had, a, had the good fortune of, of being uh, one of her professors at Trinity. So I'm grateful to be with you, too. And then we're hearing a lot about pol- politicians these days. Yeah, did you watch the debates this week? Yeah. And there's so much stuff being stirred up right now about why it is that people are moving up in the polls and why they're not and what that might be a statement about or not about what's going on in our world today. But an unnamed politician, you can fill in the name, was sitting at his campaign headquarters and the phone rang. And he was listening really intently. And after a minute, his face got all lit up. He smiled, his eyes were bright, and he hung up and he immediately called his mother. Who wouldn't when you get an important phone call, right? Mom, he shouted, the results are in. I won the election. Then there was a pause, and she said, honestly? All of a sudden, the politician's face faded, the smile faded, and he said, oh, Mom, why bring that up at a time like this? 
We all like to win. And we all want to be a part of the crowd chanting, we're number one. We're number one. We're swept away on home football Saturdays, aren't we? The legendary football coach Vince Lombardi is quoted as saying, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. But Lombardi continued to say throughout the end of his life that he was misquoted. Um, But there are many of us who believe that winning is really the only thing that matters, that what we do, that the, the ends justify the means. And maybe down deep, we have more of that winning tendency than we may think we do. So there are a lot of people in this world who divide the world into winners and losers, and it doesn't matter how many people you have to move through. The only thing that matters is to get your point across or to be on top. Last year, um, my spouse and I had the great fortune of being able to go to Manhattan, to New York City, and attend the doctoral graduation of a former Trinity student. And so we decided to make an event of it, going to New York City. How many, uh, how many opportunities you get to do that? So we went to the Letterman Show, and we also saw a couple of, of uh, Broadway plays while we were there. Um, and included in all of that was the one-man show about President Lyndon Johnson we got to see, which was marvelous. So I was intrigued by the, the personhood and the character of Johnson as a result of that show, and I started to do a little digging, a little bit more uh, reading. And I came across a book by the White House correspondent, Helen Thomas, who's sort of legendary person. She's on Meet the Press all the time and so on. She wrote a book called Thanks for the Memories, Mr. President. And in that book, she talks about Johnson as the master of the politics of power. And she also said that any Broadway depiction about the man is probably an understatement. So she said there was one story that LBJ repeated over and over again that helps explain probably his drive to be number one. Uh, Lyndon said, I'm saying the familiar, th- familiar way of describing him, President Johnson said that his father would come into his room every morning at 5 o'clock, tweak his toes, and shout, Get up, Lyndon. Every other boy in town has a head start on you. Jesus and his disciples were coming to the town of Capernaum, and as they were entering the house where they'd be staying, he he started asking his questions uh, to his disciples about what was going on and ask them specifically, you could tell they'd been arguing, probably. You know, those red faces that come after arguments. Um, uh, what were you arguing about? They were quiet. They didn't tell him. But they were arguing about who was number one, who was special, who was most important. And who doesn't want to uh, be best, be special, be one that people pay attention to? You know, Abraham Lincoln often would say to himself when he was a boy, studying by that uh, legendary uh, log fire, he would say, I will study and get ready and perhaps my chance will come. And we know that under a great deal of fire, his chance sure did come. And I'm always impressed when I read about uh, George Washington Carver, born of a slave mother, never met his father, he wanted to make a difference in the world, and he did. He, 
became one of the greatest scientists in American history. That's pretty powerful stuff. Well, the disciples were just like you and me, human beings. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to have an impact. They wanted to offer something to the world. And they also wanted to stand out. We get that, don't we? Because we all are that in some way, shape, or form. And then Jesus sits down with them, calls them all together and says, if anyone wants to be first, they have to be last, be servants. So I want to raise the issue about ambition this morning. And I think that in and itself is not wrong. In and of itself, it's not wrong. It's more about what the ambition is directed toward than the movement and passion itself. Just wonder about that this morning. If anyone wants to be first, they must be very must be last and servant. Think about that. If you want to really be great, you have to lean into other people. And what would being a servant mean? What is service? It's really, in some ways, not the the um, ambition that most of us would aspire to, servanthood, service. There was an experiment uh, in another seminary a number of years ago uh, in New Jersey. Twenty theological students, and I'm telling a story on my own people here, so this is good. Um, <laughs> so 20 theological students were instructed to go into a studio and record their interpretation of the story of the Good Samaritan, which you're all familiar with, right? And then um, in a second group, another 20 students were told to go into that same studio. And, however, they were given a different assignment. They were told that they were participating in a career study program, and they were going to give a talk about their future career and their idea of ministry. Well, unknown to the students, you know, how sneaky professors are, um, a professional actor had been hired to stage an act for them as they walked along the route from the dorms into the studio. And as the students passed by this actor, he clutched his heart and he gasped, Oh, this is the big one! And then he toppled over. What do you imagine happened? I'll give you the statistics now. 60% of those lovely theological students did not stop. They trudged right on to keep their appointments with the assignments and the recordings. Again, I'm telling something about my own people. So there was an article in a uh, journal called Human Behavior that talked about this experiment, and, uh, um, and this is what it said. Um, some who were planning their dissertation on the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the slump body as they hurried along. Hmm, that's real. Talk about irony, beyond irony. Wow, how many times <clears throat> have you or I done that? Really? Aware of our gospel message, devoted to it, and missing the everyday way that it can be embodied. A comedian on uh, Dave Letterman once said that he had been mugged. Not sure if this was true or if he's just telling a story to make a point. But he said he was mugged. He was beaten up, his face blackened and, his, and bruised. And um, Dave asked him, well, so why didn't you fight back? And his answer was, I started to, but I decided not to get involved. 
Maybe that, you know, that non-involvement may be a curse in our world today. We rationalize our lack of involvement or pitching in or doing something. We don't pick up hitchhikers. I was warned about that when I was starting to drive because they may knock us on the head. We don't stop to help someone with a medical emergency because we might get sued. That is a predominant concern right now. We don't want to give to the homeless people any money because they're going to spend it on drink anyway, making assumptions about that. And we don't want to support people who are living on the margins because they shouldn't be in that place in the first place. So there's some little bit of truth in all those rationalizations, just a tiny bit. But the hard truth of our lives is that we would much rather be served than to serve and to receive rather than to give. Um, When my father entered into probably his late 60s, early 70s, he would often say to me, either when I was with him in person or often on the phone too, he would say, are you mumbling? Would you just say that again? So sometimes I do mumble. I need to confess that. And it's usually when I'm thinking, but it made me start to wonder, you know, when I was talking to him, whether or not I was being clear, or was there something else going on? So as my brother and sister and I started talking about it, we realized he was saying the same thing to all of us, and I'm more of a mumbler than they are, so something else was going on. And then we began to realize that 40 years of working with loud machinery as the head of a truck manufacturing company has probably impacted his ears. He was president and the owner of, uh, of a company, and, but he was always doing the day-to-day stuff. He wasn't just in the office. He was out in the shop all the time. And so he was exposed throughout his whole life to hard, loud, and problematic noises. And that does influence your hearing. So um, he decided, he began to invest in various succession of hearing aids. And they all see, he would talk on the phone as he got a new hearing aid. He seemed to dispose of them fairly quickly, too, which was an issue (laughs) about money. But he would complain about them all the time. What drove him crazy in the early years of of hearing aids was that the earlier uh, forms and the cheaper forms, honestly, um, made all the sounds heard at the same level. So there was no distinguishing between the different sounds. So he had no ability to cut through the noise to listen to what was most important was all the same. So I think that my dad shared a problem with all of us. We wear our earbuds while working out. I do. Of course, I listen to classical music. But generations of us have gone to rock concerts, right, and have been exposed to our very own forms of too loud and too much, whatever that might be. No, I need to confess that I stood not too many years ago here in Columbus for four hours waiting to get tickets to be in the pit to be with Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) That was loud. Constant loud. (laughs) Um, Research is showing that there are other kinds of problems with things that are loud and overpowering. Noise contributes to high blood pressure, Um, elevated death rates from diseases in our hearts and our arteries. It damages our cells. And exposure to loud sounds stimulates what's called the free radicals that damages heart tissue. So noise is not good for us. 
So I wonder about how to turn down the volume and tune out some of the clamor so that we can listen to the things that are most important and to find the frequencies and the amplitudes that resonate with the things for us with an eye on our faith in Jesus that are true and authentic to the message that we've been given in the gospel. How do we tell what voices to listen to? Whose advice to take? What directives are important? And what we should just fall on deaf ears? So today in the gospel, the disciples are getting really important information. They're getting information about their relationships, how they are to relate to one another and to the world. I think Jesus is giving them a very high-tech hearing aid, inviting them to be into the, in the midst of all that the world would claim for them to be. And how do you do that? Is you listen. Make service be the embodiment <clears throat> excuse me, of your belief. And he's saying, learn from my life. Service is the response to the gift of new life. Service is a grounding of a life of faith. It's the focus of this gospel lesson. It's the very point, point that actually points to the cross. It points to the resurrection. It points to a life lived of hope and new life, giving oneself for the sake of the gospel in serving others. Florence and Adolph were members of the congregation that I served in Oklahoma for 19 years. They were humble. They are gracious. Third-generation farmers. And Adolf had not gone past the eighth grade because he needed to be on the farm. He's one of the smartest men, men I ever met. And they also were the go-to people that I would spend time with when I needed to sort out something that was kind of thorny um, and I was confused about it. And then I couldn't sort out the messages I was giving, given. So they were also this incredible source of, a, a, like, being who they say they are. So I would often go to their kitchen for coffee. And over coffee one day, Adolf said um, that he had had a, uh, he overheard actually a conversation at the county fair he wanted to tell me about. And he said one exhibitor said to another, I've never seen finer sheep. How do you do it? And the other exhibitor said, they are fine sheep because I take care of my lambs. And then Adolf said to me with this cup of coffee, that's exactly what God does for us, Pastor, don't you think? And it's up to us to pitch in. Like That's who we are, the ones who pitch in. Jesus Christ, says Paul in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, became man and took himself the, um, the form of a servant. So we have Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. We have Jesus carrying the cross to Golgotha. And there was Jesus with his beloved disciple, John, after the resurrection, saying, feed my sheep. That's who we are. We dare not forget where we came from and whose we are. That's probably the most important relationship of all. We are the company of the committed We are the servant community. We are the body of Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for many. Amen.